0: On front page with me this morning, KK Tan, political analyst, columnist, and CEO of the Peace Museum Project. Also, Ira Azhari, coordinator for the Democracy and Governance Unit at Ideas. Good morning, folks. Good morning, good, Shaz.
1: Good morning, Good Shem.
0: morning. Now, police may be calling up more people to assist in the investigation into the disruption of the systems at the KL International Airport. Do we have any updates, Ira? Well, I think the latest update is just that a police investigation
2: was launched because a police report was made uh, by I think one of the staff from KLIA itself right and then so I think right now the police are just trying to gather more information and more evidence if available of uh, any sort of foul play I would say if that was the case because I think the technical glitch was quite um, serious and passengers were stranded for up to like six hours so I think they're just trying to gather more information at the moment
0: right what transpired to make um, Malaysia Airports Berhad suspect foul play KK?
1: Even before before that, I think we have to understand the significance of this event. KIA is a world-class airport. It was opened 20 years ago, which is why I think why our prime minister, Dr Mahathir, sounded quite upset that day because it was built during his time, and insisted there must be an investigation to find out why. I think it was holding back. I could see that he was quite angry when he made the report. And we are going to have visit Malaysia here next year, 2020. So this is not mm. good timing. Plus, the fact that I understand that this breakdown is the longest in the world for any international airport. Mm. It doesn't bode well for us. Mm. Mm. What I understand, I must qualify that uh, there's a police report in Lodge, so the police are investigating. Also, the government, the transport ministry is setting up a committee to investigate. But what I read, okay, I must qualify, what I read from reliable source and from a local press is something very interesting. Which I think suggests, I think there are basically three possibilities. Number one is they suggested a technical breakdown caused by network switch that connects the entire system together, mm-hmm. the switch, okay. costing about 50 million ringgit for an upgrade, mm-hmm. which was suggested five, six years ago, but it was turned down by the board of the operator, MH. Right. That there was, there was some reported. It could be a genuine breakdown mm-hmm. caused by wear and tear. Mm. Or it could be a sabotage, as suggested by MAHB, mm-hmm. or it could be both. But it's <laughs> interesting that this report actually quotes sources in very great details, which I think sounded very plausible, that the it was a case of a, a system that breakdown down because of maintenance. Mm. Do you know one of the things that many people complain about Malaysia, that we have first-class infrastructure?
0: But no maintenance culture. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Third yeah. world. They
1: call it third world maintenance culture. Yeah. And this is this could be a, a very classic case mm. where this call switch has never been changed for the last 20 or upgraded the last 20 years. What so I think this is where I think it's a good sign it's happening now la, than later. Mm, yeah. Before the yeah. visit 2020. That's we better get our act together. Indeed. Yeah.
0: And see who or what heads would roll yeah. for this one. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to take a look next at leaders being reckless and jeopardizing national unity. That's the next headline here on front page with our panelists this morning on Light. On Front Page with me this morning, Ira Azhari, Coordinator for Democracy and Governance Unit in Ideas, and Kikitan, Tan, Political Analyst, Columnist, and CEO of the Peace Museum Project. Now, DAP stalwart uh, Lim Kitsiang says that he's shocked and surprised that some opposition leaders who were formerly in government are defying royal advice about fake news and hate speech and are being reckless about uh, jeopardizing national unity in Malaysia. I guess the question is, uh, you know, Malaysians easily believe fake news, um, many Malaysians at least, and what they read on social media. So what can we do to create better awareness amongst Malaysians, Ira?
2: Well, the thing about fake news is that it actually just reinforces already long-held beliefs about something, right? So, rather than sort of create a sort of mindset or a way for people to think, I believe that it is actually sort of supplementing beliefs that are already long-held. So, I think the question should be, you know, how do we create a culture of tolerance and acceptance of each other uh, so that, you know, these fake news about, you know, how uh, that, that spreads fear and mistrust of each other will not will not foster, right? Mm-hmm. So, Um, And I think these kinds of uh, attitudes towards each other as Malaysians can only be fostered through education, good family values and, you know, interactions with each other at a very micro level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the thing about the whole disunity and disharmony that, uh, that we always talk about, I think, is a result of people not... Just, just not trusting each other from a very um, young age. So I think education plays a very important role, and also friendships and and th- that's built through um, through trust and understanding of each other. Mm-hmm. So it is not very easy, I think, to to solve that problem or or rather the situation that we are in now, because it actually needs to be um, nurtured from a very very young age. Right, mm-hmm. KK.
0: How do we find the middle ground between regulating news and and freedom of speech.
1: I'm in favour of freedom of speech, but I think everything else has its limits. In fact, I recently there was also a reminder, a call by two ministers, at least two ministers, calling for a law against hate speech. I think we have to distinguish hate speech and fake news. Uh, fake news, as Ira say, is not difficult. It's not easy to enforce. Whether we have a te- even if we have a law against fake news privacy as we had, mm-hmm. it was difficult to enforce because you need the technical resources and you need people making actual complaint. How do you know whether the news is fake or not? Someone has to make a complaint and the authorities concerned have to do some research and say, yes, it's fake news. I actually believe that fake news should be taken out, should be banned. Mm-hmm. It can be regulated. Uh, so has hate speech, which in many yeah. ways, even Facebook has regulated it. Mm-hmm. So it can be done. It's question whether we have the political will in Malaysia to do it. And I think we must because of the recent events, the sensitivity. Mm-hmm. When hearing about the recent more severe cases of boycott mm-hmm. and all this, I think it's even... He yeah. has gone to a different level. I think something has to be done to stop it.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, when we come back, we'll be taking a look at this latest development in Kuala Lumpur. The bus mini is making a comeback. That's next here on Light. And on front page with me this morning, Tan, political analyst and columnist, also Ira Azhari, researcher at Ideas. Looks like KL's bus mini has made a comeback. Uh, 21 trips have been conducted so far, with three buses in operations, faring about 200 commuters. Of course, it's just in one area in KL. Um, is this a good step forward to help our public transportation network in KL, KK?
1: I would believe so I think if you look back my understanding was that it was first introduced in 1975 to 98 23 years then for some un- unexplained reason it was taken off and I think we need bus mini in every city not just in KL when it's growing because public transportation is how to meet the needs of the white section of people mm-hmm. of course some people they prefer taking taxis those can afford and there are people who cannot afford doing that and I think Pass Mini plays a very essential role.
0: Because it can go deeper into whatever area. Sure, it can go deeper and
1: it's cheap Mm -hmm. and efficient. And you're talking about 15 minutes of waiting time during peak hours, I understand, it's 25 minutes during the non-peak hours. It's reasonable for the men on the street, ordinary people to wait. Mm Especially this kind of situation now where, you know, our, I don't think our economic situation is, our economy is doing very well. So I think we are obliged, or the country or the government is obliged to provide more affordable transportation for everyone.
0: Yeah, but wouldn't a bigger bus mean more passengers?
2: Well, at first, I, the first thing I wanted to say was that, you know, any form of uh, increased public transport in the city, I think, is in principle a great idea. You know, obviously a bigger bus uh, would be better, uh, but I think the whole point of a bus mini is so that it can go into more sort narrower, of narrower street, streets, so more secluded areas, you know, to ferry people from those places uh, into the city. So I think for its purpose, I think it's okay. Although, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about how much bus minis would kind of add to traffic as well, because that's another issue, right, that mm-hmm. we have too many cars on the road. And uh, some of our roads are actually just not big enough for the amount of cars and transport that we have. So I guess that is that is something that can be taken into account. But for the purpose that it serves, I think it's okay.
0: Yeah, I believe this is only going on for three months. Mm -hmm. And uh, what will they do with the findings that they get? Well,
1: it depends. I think the thing now is basically whatever they do, there has to be market demand. Mm -hmm. So they're testing the Mm -hmm. market. I'm sure if there's you know, it, it works out well, they're very, my understanding is rapid care of saying they're going to expand this, yeah. extend it. I think my personal gut feeling there's a need for it. Okay. Because the big buses doesn't cater for what the small buses can do yeah. All right. in many ways.
0: Alright, when we come back, we'll be taking a look at the calls for a higher retirement age and cost of living allowance. That's next here on Front Page on Front Page. With me this morning, Ira Azhari from Ideas and Political Analyst and columnist KK Tan. And it looks like the government will study the Malaysian Trade Union Congress's proposal to raise the mandatory retirement age from 60 to 65, says Human Resources Minister M. Kulasegerin. And he said the government will review the matter before Budget 2020. They're also looking at a cost of living allowance. And I'm just wondering, Ira, mm-hmm. is this uh, is raising the mandatory retirement age A good move
2: Um, I think we can look at it From two perspectives So firstly Is on uh, Personal financing And secondly On For young people I think what does this mean So the first First thing is Raising the mandatory age to sixty-five, I think, would allow workers to more time to save for their retirement. So, I think I think that's probably the mm. main motivation behind MTUC's concerns because retiring at sixty, I think, would then. I mean, the average lifespan of a Malaysian nowadays, is like what 80? Yes, yeah, eighty? Yeah, yeah, about eighty, right? So that's about twenty years that you will have to live on, uh, your EPF savings or your you know your uh, pension savings. So, you know, and and I think it's common knowledge that uh, Malaysians don't save enough money for mm-hmm. retirement. So I think think uh, that would be a main concern although the flip side the, the other side of to that argument is that uh, you know our youth and sports minister has come out to oppose this because uh, of the concern that mandatory retirement 65 then will mean that a senior manage the senior management uh, positions in many companies mm-hmm. will then stay within the sort of that range that range the okay. age range and that would probably limit young people yeah, from, but that's from getting up the ladder. with
0: experience, isn't it? KK, your thoughts? I actually
1: agree very much with this extension mm. because I think, like what Ira said, the lifespan of Malaysians is increasing. And this is a trend all over the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're increasing the retirement age for all people all over the world. Because the other thing you must bear in mind is that as long as these people are productive, they can contribute yeah. to the economy. I mean, the experience, we need the experience, we need the wisdom, which younger people do not have. I'm not denying, I'm not saying about denying the right opportunities for younger people. Yeah. I think in many other countries, it can be done very nicely to cater, uh, because there are certain jobs, as when you when when you when you extend it, they are basically in jobs where these people, these older people are still needed. Because mm. young people have to start from the ropes. And I'm all in favour of it. I think to address the concern by this youth and sports minister, I think we can really clearly, the government, can it can be done in a way without denying the opportunities yeah. to younger people. I know unemployment in the youth is very serious today. I understand mm-hmm. it's about half a million young people, especially graduates who are unemployed. It is a serious problem. It is. Yeah. So we have to look for those kind of jobs that young people can feel.
0: Right. Now, yeah. Kula Sagren said that the unemployment rate in the country is only at 3.3%. Is this true?
1: We can never take such rates seriously. (laughs) It's always a big debate about it because a lot of people do not report Mm. unemployment. Even in the West where there's a lot more accountability, I mean, figures there are more. Because for people who want to enjoy unemployment benefits, they have to register themselves. Then you can track the data. In this country, you don't get unemployment benefits. So it's very hard to track the data. Mm. Yeah. The
2: more worrying thing is also youth unemployment, which is like at 10.7%, I think, which is higher than the regional average. Yeah. So I think that should be the bigger concern as well, that we have such a high graduate unemployment mm-hmm. rate.
0: Well, when we come back, we'll take a look at the latest on the IRB ruling. Uh, we're, they've gotten some mixed reactions from NGOs and charity bodies. That's next here on Light. On front page with me this morning, political analyst and columnist K.K. Tan, also researcher at Ideas, Ira Azhari. And while the Inland Revenue Board's decision to lower the donation reporting threshold to 1,000 ringgit is unlikely to affect donations, it may be an administrative burden, says charitable bodies and NGOs. They did welcome the move to tighten regulations to prevent charity bodies from abusing public donations. So how will putting a cap on the tax deductions for donations Actually, affect charities.
2: Um, I think the main concern when any new government regulation comes about is always the bureaucracy and the red tape that people have to go through to comply with these regulations. So, I think that's the main concern from from NGOs. One thousand ringgit is a pretty low threshold. People typically donate more than that. I think for for charities, uh, you know, particularly if you're like a large corporation or a very rich individual. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's that's the main concern. I think, and I think. It, it is on the government on how do you increase transparency, which I think is the main purpose behind yes. this regulation, but balance that with understanding that if there are too much red tape and regulations, like, people will just try to escape it, mm-hmm. right? So, I think just achieving that balance. But I think on principle, you know, it's a good move in the sense that they want to increase transparency and accountability. Your thoughts, KK?
1: Well, I agree with Ira here on most of the points. On the rationale behind it, I'm very sure that Ira must have a lot of complaints. So. Mm. Or they may have done some research and found out that there could be been quite a lot of abuse with mm-hmm. NGOs. So I think it may be necessary for them to do such a thing. I don't think it should discourage people from donating. Because it's not my problem how much I want to donate. Mm-hmm. Yet it puts a pressure on the red tape on the NGOs themselves to be more, of course, involved more cause, mm-hmm. more administrative work. But I think it, that's, that's life. Lah. I mean, if you want to get mm-hmm. the donation you jolly well yeah. be accountable for it. La. <laughs> <laughs> you know, If I'm going to donate to you, I expect you, even if I get donate $500, I expect mm-hmm. you to report it. Yeah. So they put a treasure 1000 I think it's not unreasonable.
0: Mm. So I
1: think in, in, in the interest of transparency, IRC. I think we should support it.
0: All right. Well, uh, thank you folks for joining me this morning to look at the front page. Um, Kiki Tan, also Ira Azari, thank you so much for your thoughts on our headlines. And thank, thank you. you for having us.
1: Yes, thank you very much.